agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at North Kentucky University. I'm joined today by Cleveland Area Attorney and Republican Factotum, Jay Carson. Hey, Jay. Good morning, Mike. How are you doing this morning? I'm all, I'm all right. I'm, I'm okay. That's, that's good. I am, I am glad to hear it. Uh, I'm hanging in there myself. There's a, there's a phrase, you probably heard it. Everyone else has probably heard it like last on this, but the, uh, the Corona coaster, that's kind of how I feel like sort of riding the Corona coaster with the ups and the downs. And, uh, I just want to get off. But anyway, um, I wanted to mention before we started that, uh, if you're an extremely observant listener, you might have noticed that a while back I changed our opening to the show just just slightly. I used to call myself a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University, which I still am. But not too long ago, I changed that to professor of political science. And I did that because I actually not too long ago got promoted to full professor. And the reason I mentioned that is because this podcast and all of you are a big reason for that, that was uh, one of the sort of major things I argued for as why I was worthy of uh, of a promotion. The sort of work that Jay and I and you know all of our other co-hosts were doing, I I sort of over the last four or five guys, it's been about five years, hasn't it, Jay? It's hard to imagine. Yeah, it's been yeah. Well, I mean, over, longer. And over that period of time, I just basically decided that I was going to stop doing sort of for the most part. Uh, traditional academic research where you write, you know, articles that are very hyper-specialized and maybe a few dozen people read them or a few hundred if you're lucky, but they don't really read them. They just use them to kind of cite them in their articles and that sort of thing. And I just felt like, you know, that just wasn't, didn't seem like a good use of my time. And so Jay and I started the show and it kind of grew to the point where it is. And and I really feel like it had much more of an impact than anything I could do in sort of traditional academia. And I made that case to my my university, and they they've responded favorably. They, and so, they bought it. yeah, yeah. No, and, and I am I'm grateful to them, and most especially, I am grateful to all of you who obviously you know make this possible. Because it was just Jay and me, we wouldn't be doing this, I don't think for sure. But uh, so, so thank you very much. Also, I want to thank our new Patreon supporter this week, Tony, as well as Stephen, who's been a supporter, and he recently increased his monthly support for the show. So thank you very much for that. And finally, I wanted to thank uh, Ben. Ben reached out to me, uh, sent me an email saying, I'm a 15-year-old student from Toronto, Ontario, and I've been listening to the podcast for a while now. I've always wanted to sign up for bonus content, but I felt bad doing so without joining the Patreon community. I was hoping to borrow money from my parents, but they did not see this as a worthy cause. For what? the time, yeah, you know, for the time being, until I get a job, I was hoping I could have access to the bonus content and can join the Patreon community in the near future. And you know, I responded to Ben. Well, I, you know, I'm happy to do that. And again, I'm, I'm saying this because I'm happy to set anyone who, for whatever reason, their parents are misguided and don't think exactly. it's a worthy Your cause. Won't let you blow money on American podcasts. You know, but whatever it is, I am. I am so happy, and I'm especially. I got to say, Jay, I'm especially happy when. When you know younger listeners of folks in high school and so forth, and I, I feel like that's you know I especially want to, to help help those folks out, but really anyone. So just send me an email, mikeypoliticsguys.com. I'll set you up with you know that that midweek show that's for supporters only, but again, also for people who want it but just can't afford to become supporters. More than happy to do that. So there you go. And before we get started in earnest today. We wanted to uh, mention that, you know, just this morning we learned of the, the death of John Lewis, who represented Georgia's 5th Congressional District for over 30 years, but far more, I would say, uh, significantly, uh, not that that was insignificant, but was one of the key figures in the civil rights movement. Uh, uh, you know, one of my one of my personal heroes was uh, uh, late Republican Senator John McCain, who himself knew a thing about, uh, you know, personal sacrifice, courage, and service. He said of Lewis, I've seen courage in action on many occasions, but I can't say I've seen anyone possess more of it and use it for any better purpose and to any greater effect than John Lewis. And I couldn't agree more. He, is, he, he was a great man and he will be missed. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, I, I would add to that. Uh, uh, actually, you know, who had a, a lot of nice things to say about him was, was Mitch McConnell. <laughs> you might be surprised by that, but um, there's something to be said for the, when we talk about a lot of these issues, race and civil rights and, and so forth, that um, uh, so many people today don't really appreciate. And I count myself among those people. It's hard to appreciate, to understand uh, what these civil rights pioneers uh, went through. Uh, you know, when, when John Lewis went out and marched, it was not just a matter of I'm holding a sign and, and uh, you know, maybe I'll get yelled at or it's, or it's just kind he of a, a fun walk arrested over 40 times. It was, and, yeah, it I mean, was literally, literally risking your life, yep. risking uh, imprisonment, getting beaten, uh, jailed, and, and, and all those things happened to him. Um, so, uh, you know, this, this was a man who, who truly walked the walk. Uh, and there's plenty of things I could say I disagree with uh, uh, him on, on policy things and, and things he did later in life. But, but there's no doubt that that type of courage and, and sort of moral vision that, that he had uh, is, is something uh, that we ought to celebrate in America. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, Jay, uh, I know we have a lot of things we want to talk about, but just briefly, there was sort of, well, there was not sort of, there was, in fact, a reversal from the Trump administration related to a story we talked about last week, right? Well, yeah, that's what that was going to be the, the lead off was uh, Trump rescinds uh, uh, student visa order following politics guys uh, you, broadcast. That's how I that's how I characterize it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, no question that. And uh, yes, I mean, we we discussed this last week. The order um, uh, that were required uh, for to maintain a student visa, you had to be attending uh, classes in person. Uh, and and Mike, both you and I agreed that the rule was sort of silly and, and misguided. Uh, and uh, someone in the Trump administration, um, obviously a listener, uh, felt felt the same way, and uh, they rescinded it uh, early last week. Yeah. And from what I understand, though, the last I heard, the the judge, because Harvard and MIT and a bunch of other universities. Right. There, was a, there was a yeah, there was part it was part of a settlement. Essentially. Well, well, from I mean, what I, I understand is that the judge call a settlement if you just, you know, you know, fold the table and go home. But um, right. Yeah, it was it's one of these. And this happens frequently is, you know, you show up in court and. The judge says, uh, well, what if we uh, sit you guys down for a couple minutes and maybe you guys can talk through this and see if you can find a solution. Um, and and that seems to be what happened at, at that point. They just, uh, the government thought better of it. Uh, and, and I think, you know, for, for a couple of reasons. I mean, one uh, risk, you know, a potential bad precedent, not that this would have carried a whole lot of presidential value, but, um, uh, you know, I, I, I think it, it just, they realized this wasn't this wasn't a hill worth fighting on. Yeah, and from although from what I what I heard, and this was uh, this was a few days ago. I don't know if it's changed. The judge in the case says that she intends to not to keep the case open, which would mean that the administration, if they were to kind of throw in any changes there, would have to, I guess, sort of quickly defend them. It would be sort of teed up for you know for, for action. I don't know if that's changed at all, but that was the last that I heard about that. But right. in any I, case. It's a little troubling, but, but in, well, in any case, we can agree that this is sort of the outcome, the outcome that we wanted a, uh, uh, a misstep, a big misstep by the Trump administration that was that was corrected. And so that's that's it would have been better had it not happened in the first place. But if it were to happen, it's good that it got fixed. So there we go. Uh, so let's I guess let's move on, Jay, right to our kind of yeah, first. So our, our first story this week, um, you know, of many we have this is just sort of a smorgasbord of, of, uh, of things we've got going this week. But the first thing we're going to talk about is uh, masks. Um, uh, who's for them, who's against them, who's wearing them, who's not. Uh, the, the, this sort of came to a head in Georgia, where uh, Georgia uh, Republican Governor Brian Kemp um, issued an order uh, that would essentially uh, over, override any uh, city mask mandates or other um, uh, coronavirus uh, orders. Uh, also, he filed suit against uh, Atlanta Mayor um, Keisha Lance Bottoms uh, over that city's uh, well, a couple things. One over over a, a mask mandate. Uh, two over um, 
uh, issues relating to the number of, of people who could gather. Uh, the governor's emergency order had rec- recommended but not required masks and had uh, also uh, limited gatherings to 50 people or more. The Atlanta mayor's uh, order uh, took it down to 10. Um, so the the uh, the governor had filed suit. Now, Mike, I'd be interested in your, your thoughts on, on this because I, I have a couple that didn't really, I don't know, make, make the press so much. But uh, your thoughts on, on uh, Governor Kemp's uh, taking action, both in the, in the court and also by additional executive order uh, on masks and other corona issues. Well, I, I know that Governor Kemp certainly has been in the forefront of wanting to open things up and so forth, even getting ahead of President Trump on, on occasion, which is really saying something. But I got to say, I, you know, I'm, I'm hugely puzzled by this. When I look at, for instance, current hospitalization data in Georgia, which I think is maybe a better metric than, than you know, than new cases, as you've argued in the past. Yeah. And it looks like a, it looks like the world's scariest ski slope for the last couple of weeks. And so in the face of that, we, we see this we see this very counterintuitive order and then the counterintuitive reasoning from Governor Kemp saying that this lawsuit is on behalf of the Atlanta business owners and their hardworking employees who are struggling to survive during these difficult times. It's obviously a direct quote. And I thought, well, wait a second. I'm pretty sure that actually the best way to keep this uh, to keep things under control is for everyone to wear masks. And so that would seem to be exactly the opposite of what one would be arguing. So from a legal standpoint, I think it seems to me he does have, in fact, the authority to do what he's doing and, and he should, I believe, win the lawsuit. But from a public policy standpoint, I am just completely bumfuzzled as to why what in the world Governor Kemp is thinking here? Okay. Well, I, I, I think you got both those questions right, Mike. Thank you. That's, that's two points. Um, no, I, I, I would agree with you that, uh, you know, because I, I, I was a little puzzled by this myself. Uh, the way it was so often reported was uh, Governor Kemp doesn't like uh, wearing masks, so he's uh, essentially trying to overrule any city's attempt to do that. Um, so I actually looked at the suit and what, what was in it and what was, what was uh, alleged. Uh, and, and it comes down to, I think, there, there's a fundamental issue of who's in charge here, right, of who, who can issue these orders. Um, and can a city um, issue its own order that contradicts, uh, contravenes, or is somehow inconsistent with the governor's order? Uh, as I understand, under Georgia's constitution, uh, a city cannot do that. Uh, they are sort of uh, uh, report, or they are, they are sort of subdivisions, political subdivisions of the state. Uh, they would not have the authority to uh, act in contravention of, of the governor's order. So I think there was a little bit of, um, you know, he he sort of had to, to file the suit, uh, sort of protect the office, protect the the principle of it. There's also in the suit it makes mention of um, uh, Mayor Bottoms saying that uh, Atlanta was going to be moving to a level one uh, emergency, which is more than just wearing masks, would be business shutdowns and so forth. And I think the governor was seeking to head off. Uh, any cities that would try to impose uh, their own uh, shutdown or stay-at-home order or or whatever you want to call it. Um, so in that context, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, in the in the general public policy context, I think you're right. I think most people would say uh, masks seem to be a minimally intrusive way uh, to to stop the spread uh, and and are, are comfortable. Uh, with that regime, and it's sort of if, if wearing masks can, can prevent uh, a further spread, which would necessitate uh, another lockdown, that's all a good thing. Um, so, and yeah, in some ways, I think you know the governor uh, may be partially wrong on policy, but I think he's right on the law, and I think he's right on the uh, the idea of of uh, listen, you know, right or wrong. Uh, the authority to to issue these orders uh, lies with the state government and not with uh, individual cities, uh, at least as, as as I understand it under the Georgia Constitution. And I think that's that's probably consistent with most uh, state constitutions. Yeah. 
And of course, he wouldn't have had to file a lawsuit against Atlanta if he hadn't issued that order in the first place that said that, you know, cities and municipalities uh, aren't, aren't able to, you know, impose their own mask regulations, which again, even from sort well, of a- Well, I mean, yes. Yeah, I mean, true. Um, but I mean, that was in his initial order. Well, the way the way his the he had first order said, masks are recommended, uh, but not required. And he could have uh, left it at that. Atlanta said they're required, and then he said, "Well, no, they're not." And that's then when, right? He could have said he could have left it at that, like a lot of like a lot of state. Well, some states have done saying that you know we're going to let local governments, they're closest to the people. It's the, you know they have the most kind of uh, ears to the ground, so to speak, and so we're we are not going to issue a statewide mandate, which I disagree with. But in any case, saying that if a, if a locality feels it's in the, it's in the best interest of the health and safety of the people, there, there I mean, it's that's sort of sure, he could, have, he could have authorized yeah. cities to make their he, own rules. He chose not he to do not. that. It seems like disastrously yeah. bad public policy, especially this is the same week when the director of the CDC says, you know, hey, one or two months of universal masking in this country would basically just crush COVID. And uh, yeah. I mean, that's when I think about the impact in terms of human lives, human health, and the economic impact, and the idea that a governor is is decided to pick this time to fight a battle to go the other way, it just I, I'm I'm totally perplexed, and I have not seen any sort of a rationalization or explanation aside from the one that I read out that again makes no sense to me at all. Uh, and so if you're concerned about the long-term health of businesses, so that just. Oh, no, I mean, I, I, I completely see the sense of it in that, hmm, okay. um, look, if, if the, uh, city of Atlanta can say, uh, uh, well, I'm not gonna say what they, they could say, uh, to the state on, on masks, uh, uh forget you governor, we're going to do our own, um, uh, we're going to do our own thing, regardless of what your order says. Uh, the city of Atlanta could it also, as as uh, the mayor uh, indicated that she was planning on doing, uh, ratchet up other other things, which would include business closures. Yeah, so but that's I a different story. I mean, that that's 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 a. I think that's a, a logically yeah, but, but fallacious the, but the slope argument. Be, but the idea would be: look, it's better to uh, to get this to court and and raise the issue now, as opposed to. Uh, in a, a situation where you are talking about preliminary injunctions and shutting down businesses, uh, according to the suits, after the mayor said she's going to do this shutdown, some businesses did, in fact, voluntarily shut down, uh, well, voluntarily, but believing that they were, were, were required to or would soon be required to. Uh, and that's, I think, the, the harm he's, he was seeking to, to stop is if you have if you have a state that uh, every little in every uh, not saying little, Atlanta's certainly not little, but every um, municipality is going to uh, set its own uh, its own rules and start shutting down businesses. That could be very consequential. Well, and, and uh, I know, I know economic health of the state, and and it could override the, the policy of uh, of you know, right for probably the governor. Look, if 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 you're if you're the governor of Georgia and the city of Atlanta says we're shutting down, uh, that's uh, and, that, that is a and I know what you're doing here. You're trying to find a rationalization for a uh, for a bad policy, and it's it's a stretch, and that's why it just is not. No, wait, let, let me finish. And so, because the fact of the matter is, is he could have dealt with that in his order by saying that state cities are able to impose mask requirements, but they are not they are not able to override my rules on business closures. That wasn't what was done in the order, and so no, no, there's the, just the no order, way around order. it, Jay. That the he order, could have allowed states. He could have allowed cities inconsistent with with uh, the order, and he could have made an exception for masks. He chose not to do that, so he could have stopped that. He could have made that clear. It's just I, I get it. You're trying to defend the indefensible, and it's it, of course you're going to have a rough job of it. You know. So, oh dear. Uh, let me well, what take, do you mean, oh dear? Take a look at this. Take a look I, at I the read the order. I, I read the, the order. Well, I know you read the order, but but you need to to read the the lawsuits and. But it goes back to the order because the lawsuit wouldn't have happened without the order. Because the, no, the, the lawsuit wouldn't have happened without uh, the Atlanta mayor's order. No, no, no. Because the the governor's order forbade, forbid, forbid, forbade municipalities from issuing rules in contravention of what was in that order. 
which Atlanta right. did. But if it had, right. if if that original order had said municipalities can set their own mask regulations, but they can't do anything else or can't do X, Y, and Z, it would have addressed all the concerns you have about Atlanta shutting down without without having this this effect of, uh, you know on the mask situation. So it was. At best, the most charitable reading, it was a horribly poorly written order. I, I, that's the most charitable I can be toward. All right. So well, um, I guess, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But uh, to me, the, the larger thing is who who is in charge here? Is it the state or is it, is yeah, it the is cities? A, a real time to get into a pissing match here when people are dying. That's that's wonderful. Well, so, yeah. Good call, Governor Kemp. Um, anyway, um, more generally speaking, it seems to me that this is just a. a this is once again an example of the fact that our example points out that, you know, federalism, I think, for so many reasons is great and wonderful in so many circumstances. But this is not necessarily one of them. It seems to me that there should be national guidelines. And I would think in those national guidelines, they would include a mask mandate for any county, let's say, because I think, you know, that's how we do it. That's how it's been in Ohio and a lot of other places right. saying that states can differ. But any county where, say, the average number of new cases or hospitalizations or positive test percentage, you know, there are different ways to look at the metrics where it exceeds a certain level for a period of time. Then there's a mandate and it remains into a, you know, remains in effect for a certain period of time. Now, it's certainly questionable. I'm not sure what the, the constitution. Well, I'm going to get to that. that. Yeah, that, that's a great question. It's questionable if the president has the authority to do this. Maybe not. but. Adherence to something like this could be tied to receiving future COVID funds, which I think would be a better put it things on a firmer legal ground there. Um, and Correct. in addition to that, I think that, you know, certainly the administration should more fully invoke the Defense Production Act because it's unacceptable to me. And I think to a lot of people that states are still scrambling and bidding against each other for supplies. And in addition, you know, there's no national testing and contract tracing plan, um, just kind of hodgepodge of state plans. And so what I see from all this and what's been going on in the last month or so is that the federal government largely wasted February when we really had a chance to put together a coordinated national response before COVID just really smacked us in the face. And now it seems clear to me that the federal government not only largely wasted February, but largely wasted May and June when they had a little bit of a window because of those, you know, pretty widespread stay at home orders. And and we saw that, that dip in new cases and deaths. And now we see the hospitalizations, new cases and even deaths going up. And once again, we are unprepared. This has just been a disastrously bad federal response. So let me, let me um Ask another question because this is something that's that's a little related to this. It's not necessarily, but the CDC guidelines and 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 there has been, you know, obviously the initial CDC recommendations were not to wear a mask. Yep. Um, and and now the the recommendation is well, look, if everybody just wears a mask uh, for a couple months, we can knock this out. Would would not it have been better if the CDC had had been uh, essentially leveled with people that yes, wearing a mask is a good protection. As, as I understand it, the rationale was they didn't want to put out that message because they feared too many people would snatch up the uh, N95 uh, masks that were needed for uh, first responders. Um, but uh, you know that that's me. I think that's why why we have a, a problem with masks right now. There are a lot of folks on the. On the right, and I, and I think they're they're incorrect. Uh, who who sort of say, look, the the guidance keeps changing. Why should I listen to the government about wearing a mask now? Um, well, the guidance doesn't I, keep I changing. The, 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 guidance the, guidance, the guidance changed didn't once. Really change. It was just the government was sort of no. not being truthful with you in the first place the guidance, because they were afraid you might do the wrong thing. The guidance changed once, and as the science made it clear that masks were a very important part of this. That's right. that's how the guidance changed. So the, the argument that the guidance keeps changing is is fallacious. There was there was a one change. There was an adjustment right. based on the science. And once we understood the magnitude of what we were dealing with, the guidance did, in fact, change. I think, the idea I think that, that it was done because think, of some attempt to fool people or hoodwink people is is just simply I, I think that's not supportable at all. 
No, I, I think you misunderstand what uh, the point I'm making. Oh, okay. It's, it, it's it's not that. Look, there. The science, I think, was the same then as it is now. There wasn't as much of it. So, I mean, you know, right. there, there but, wasn't but as the much CDC evidence. Made its decision on the basis of we don't want to recommend this because we're afraid too many people will will grab the mask. In part, not entirely. Right, but that's important. <laughs> You understand the massive credibility problem that creates for for any any government organization. If it, it were entirely, if it were entirely, but and let, let's let's also We're keep just lying in, a little bit. I mean, well, it's I odd mean, that this credibility problem is almost all on the right and not on the left. Given that this is right, here, given that this is Donald is Trump's CDC, which he seems to be half at war with sometimes. I don't know, but. When you take a look at, you know, there was a, a Gallup poll that was released early this week, and it found that 2% of Democrats say they, self-identified Democrats, say they rarely or never wear masks, compared right. with 36% of Republicans, with 27% of Republicans in the never category. And, and to me, a big part of that is presidential leadership. The fact that the president has actively mocked people for wearing masks and has held big events where he didn't ask people to wear masks and basically had a, you know, had a a policy of, well, you know, if you want to, if you feel like it's good for you, go ahead and do it. But, you know, masks aren't, uh, they're, they're problematic too. This is the sort of, usually, you know, this sort of symbolic leadership doesn't necessarily mean a lot in normal times. Wasn't that the CDC's line though? And it changed when the science changed and when the conditions changed. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that uh, the CDC director never or anyone at the CDC never m- mocked people for wearing masks. And I'm pretty sure that the president has much more influence over anyone than the CDC director. I, I, this has just been a this has been the greatest failure well, of presidential I, I would, leadership in my lifetime, certainly. I, I would I would tend to agree. There was there was actually was a comment on our Facebook page, which I think was was sort of prescient of uh, if. If Trump had uh, put on a mask uh, on, on day one and insisted that everyone wear masks, uh, would, would those numbers essentially be reversed, right? Um, if, if, if Trump says that the sky is blue, well, then obviously it can't be, and, and we must you know, resist any, any argument that. My, my, my point is— Well, let's, that, let's, let's, let's stick with that point before you go back to that, because I think that that's, uh, number one, of course, we, we, can't, we can't know— but given, uh, but I think that, but I think that, uh, generally speaking, liberals are a lot more likely to respond to what they see as scientific evidence and government experts and things like that. There's been a lot of survey data that suggests that, and they're a lot right. less uh, skeptical of experts and you know these highly super educated, you know, bunch of initials after their name people. So I don't think that would be the case at all. I think most of the available evidence we have says that no. In fact, what would have happened if President Trump had been on the train, the mask train from the beginning, is that a lot more people from both parties would have worn masks, and we'd uh, we'd say we'd have saved a bunch of lives, and the economy would be in better shape. Uh, I, you know, I think you're, I think you're probably right. Had he had he worn the mask, I, I, I don't. I I still think uh, um, I, I'm going to go back and try to find some some articles from early March, uh, mid March, when when this was happening, when the CDC was saying. No, no, no! Uh, please don't, don't wear a mask. I'm not because, disagreeing with you on that. To be clear, again, I, my, my, my problem, my problem, and this is what what frustrates so many conservatives, is is the idea you say, "Well, the science changed." Well, no, the, actually, the science didn't change. Science was. Well, always I, I the disagree same. with you on that. Of, so it's, it's no, it's it's not. You know, when 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 Galileo said the the uh, Earth goes around the sun, the science didn't change. It had always been that way. Sure. The state of our um, knowledge changed. That's fine. But but when we talk about the science, maybe we just need to maybe we just need to get clear on terms. When I talk about the science, what I mean is that the level of our scientific knowledge. Now, if you're I mean, certainly the the state of the world, the physical world and how it works did not change. So when I say the science changed, what I mean is that our understanding of how these physical biological processes work. Sure. And that sure. did and change. My, my point is, my point is, the CDC understood that partially. I mean, no, <laughs> okay. well, well, no, we're, and I think this is important, Jay. Because I mean, which, which, part, which part didn't they understand? No, I, I think I mean, we're they, arguing they that masks work, or or 
I don't think it's I don't think it's a binary. And I think you're trying to make it a binary. Maybe I'm wrong. But what I'm saying is that my recollection and I could be wrong and maybe this will be worth worth looking back at earlier stuff is that there were essentially two reasons for the initial mask. Don't don't go run out and buy a mask guidance. And one of those was exactly what you stated. There was a concern that there was a concern that first responders and hospitals and so forth, there weren't enough masks for those folks. And that was that was explicitly stated as part of the reasoning for that. But second. Right. But but there was a second reason. The second reason was that at the time, based on what was known about the coronavirus, it was thought that that wouldn't necessarily be nearly as important or as effective as it turned out to be. And that's where I'm saying our understanding of the mechanisms of the spread of this changed over time. And when it did change, then the guidance changed. And that's the part of it that I think that maybe you're minimizing. Well, I, I guess, and I'll, I'll just, I'll just leave it with, with, with this, but to, to put it at its simplest, my understanding is the, the CDC understood then that, hey, mask wearing uh, uh, would, you know, the benefits, there were benefits, right? And those, but, but there was not a, uh, uh, there was no real reason not to other than um, to prevent uh, what they feared would be a run right. on the N95 uh, uh, supply. Um so I, that that to me is what what what's really troubling is hey they knew something that would have a uh, benefit uh, to the to the health of the public whether it's uh, you know a, a tremendous benefit which we believe it now to be or merely a marginal benefit which they thought it was then. Um, but we always make still these... they discourage them from from doing that. But we I mean and we always we that, always that, make that, these that decisions. That speaks to government credibility, and I'm not. I'm not making the argument of, of someone's lying or not lying or who's wrong. I'm trying to explain this is why there's a credibility gap uh, and, and why a lot of conservatives don't trust experts. It's not even just that the experts might be wrong. It's that in this case, there seems to have been a, a political decision made by the experts, by the bureaucracy, and it was couched in terms of this is the science. Not to wear masks. And, it was, and I, I mean, you uh, call it political. I'm not sure what that means when you call it political in, in the sense that it helps Democrats, hurt Repub hurts Republicans. No, I what mean, do you mean political in the sense that it was not a, a medical decision. It wasn't uh, part of a medical decision. It was about weighing the costs and benefits of certain of certain actions that that could or could not be taken, just like we made the medical. I mean, the, you call it a medical or political decision about whether or not there should be stay at home orders and you weigh the costs and the benefits based on what we know about transmission rates and spread and that sort of thing. And and so these decisions are made you know, all the time. Certainly the CDC knew right away that everyone knew right away that if you would put yourself in a hazmat suit, your chances of getting uh, uh, COVID were, were essentially zero, but right. the, the, the cost of that were knew, considered too high. That, that wearing a mask then would reduce your, would reduce the, the possibility of spread yeah, of COVID. But they thought it was a lot less than what it turned out to be, in other words. And so in reweighing that cost and benefit analysis, as conditions change, the guidance change. But more to the what point. What was the cost? What was the cost though? That's my, that's my question. It seems to me it's all benefit, maybe a bit of a smaller benefit, well, what was the cost? Well, there's there's the there's certainly the uh, supply chain cost. There's the convenience cost. There's the cost of not having enough of these things for people who need them more. All these things well, need to be. But, but again, we're all, we're talking we're talking different different things. The, the concern was the N95s, the the high the high grade stuff for for healthcare workers. Uh, versus the you know just regular old cloth mask uh, type type thing that everybody's wearing now. I, I see. I, I disagree with you on the facts. I think you're misremembering it in a way that focuses on the CDC trying to pull one over on the American public, and I just I don't, don't think, think that yeah. was the case. Let me. I'll but, go back. But to let's see what put, I can let's find. put that aside because we're just talking in circles at this point. I mean, yeah. we're not getting anywhere. But the larger point, I think, is that at this point in time and for a while. Now, essentially, every leading Republican figure has said, mask up, except yeah. for one, except for one. And that's, 
That's the president of the United States. And so in the end, the buck does stop there with the president of the United States. You can talk about the CDC and credibility, but the single best thing that could be done to increase mask wearing, given especially the demographics of it, would be if the president of the United States took the lead on this and he has chosen not to do that. And that that lies squarely at his feet. And I don't see how, right. you know, he, sh- he should have ignored the CDC's guidance. Yeah, you know, that's that not what I'm saying. You know, that's not what I'm saying, Jay. Um, you know, you so. know that it's a fact that the president has done those things about masks, even after. Oh, yeah. Everyone no, else was. No, I. I yeah, I'm, I'm not disputing that. And I, it seems to me it, maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong that you're trying to sort of disavow him of responsibility for this. No, I, I'm I, well, a little bit. I mean, because, again, I don't think that. You seem to think that that America sort of follows lockstep and just, hey, what's Trump doing today? I'll do the same thing. No, not America, but certainly certainly the people who are are out there. I I don't I don't think they're in the majority, even in the Republican Party. Well, they're not. I mean, but there's there's huge numbers there. And I think those numbers are likely to be numbers that most greatly overlap with Donald Trump's core supporters. Oh, no, I I think that's that you're you're probably right there. But so. As as I said, I know we need to move on, but as I said, yeah. I, I I feel that I feel that this is by far the greatest greatest failure of presidential leadership in my lifetime. Certainly. Okay. Moving on. Uh, next story is there is the uh, first federal ex- execution since uh, two thousand three. Um, uh, Daniel Lewis Lee uh, was executed for his uh, role in the uh, murder of a. Uh, uh, gun store owner uh, and his wife and child. Um, uh, There was a last minute appeal to the Supreme Court, uh, which rejected it in a 5-4 decision. Um, uh, The appeal went to the whether the use of the particular drugs uh, was was cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, the five uh, conservatives uh, with without an opinion, essentially just just uh, agreed to the lower court. Uh, decision that that uh, no, this was uh, constitutional. Um, there was a a uh, the four four uh, dissenters. Um, uh, some dissented on the the facts uh, on on. Um, listen, do we need to 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 dig deeper into this? Uh, uh, sort of add the death penalty death penalty as applied uh, in this case. Others were uh, two dissenters were were more. Outspoken in terms of whether the death penalty uh, at all is is remain constitutional, and, and in that backdrop, uh, should should note that uh, there are 32 states right now that have abolished the death penalty. Um, so, Mike, what are your what are your thoughts on on this? Because uh, this is an issue that I I think my my opinion is going to be kind of peculiar, and, and people might be surprised by it. But hmm. but uh, where are you on the resumption of uh, federal executions? Well, um, I, I think it seems to me in the dissenters, there were, the, like you said, these sort of two different positions, uh, the one being that, well, maybe if this, this method uh, may be unconstitutional, violate the Eighth Amendment, and, uh, uh, and that was the one kind of uh, that Justice Sotomayor focused on. Then there was Justice Breyer, who kind of went a little further in his dissent, saying that, well, uh, maybe it's the death penalty itself. That is unconstitutional. And, and I, I disagree with the Breyer position. It seems to me that it's hard to argue, at least going from a sort of constitutional interpretation method that I use, that the death penalty in and of itself violates the Constitution. However, I do think it is reasonable to raise the question, and, and certainly uh, it is open to question, whether or not certain methods of execution are uh, unconstitutional under the Eighth Amendment. And I think we can certainly agree that certain methods would be, like if we draw and quarter somebody or something like right. that, that would be a violation. That's, that's out. That's yeah. an easy case. But for something like this, that that's a tougher decision. And in the majority, the unsigned majority opinion, they basically just said, well, states uh, or states and the federal government have been trying to make it as painless as possible. And we're just kind of going to assume that they're doing the best that they can. So therefore, it doesn't violate it. But I think. You can make an argument, and this is the argument that I would make. So I would have actually granted the stay, especially since, as Justice Sotomayor pointed out, that this is about as uh, uh, this is about the most irreparable harm 
that you can imagine, right? Because it's not, you can't undo this. So, I mean, the guy's been on, was on death row for 20 years. So what's, you know, a few more months, but anyway, I think you can make the argument that if we know for a fact that a method of execution that is less, that is quicker, more certain and less painful exists and, and a state or the government chooses to not use that and use something else then that raises, I think, a valid constitutional question. And we know that there is such a method. It's the firing squad. Uh, there have been studies done on this, and it's, it's clear that a firing squad uh, it can be, you know, certainly quicker, more painless, more sure than lethal injection. And it seems to me that the problem we have is that, well, it doesn't look good. But to me, the point isn't making us feel better about taking somebody's life. Oh, it's just he just slipped away, like like when I when we put down Scruffy or something like that. No, it's it's to make the execution as non cruel as possible for the person being executed. And if we don't like what that looks like, that's a, then maybe we need to think about whether we want to uh, have a death penalty at all. So. That's my view on it. And, you know, certainly there are still states that have the firing squad option for them, I believe, Mississippi, Oklahoma, Utah, uh, maybe three of them. So uh, I think that that maybe is how I would kind of come down. In fact, there have been some death row prisoners who've requested firing squads, so I think, for kind of along along those lines, not trusting lethal injection to be uh, painless and, and non-cruel. So that's my my take on it, Jay. Wow. All right. So there we are. Mike, Mike says, bring back the firing squads. Um, uh, let, let me no, be I, clear I though. That, I am, I would be for, I, I just because I, I think it's the no, death penalty think, is constitutionally okay. Right. I, I am absolutely in favor of, uh, uh statutes that, uh, that, you know, abolish the death penalty. Right. No, no, no. I, you, you understand I'm being facetious. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just want to make that clear for listeners. I am not pro death penalty for a lot of reasons. That's a different, <laughs> that's a different argument. But as we've talked about a lot, Jay, you know, there's the constitutionality of something and then, then there's the wisdom of it as a policy and they can be very exactly. different. Yeah. Things. And that's why I think, look, it's important to note that, uh, there are 32 States that have, uh, abolished the death penalty. And if you're going to abolish the death penalty, well then, then that's the way to do it, right? They've done it legislatively, or or, or by, uh, I suppose some of them may have may have been by constitutional amendment. How, however, they they went through their own democratic process to do it. It was not a uh, simply a court order uh, saying that it's it's unconstitutional. Right. I'd also agree with you. I, I don't think even if you're you're not an originalist, I, I think it's tough to square any sort of idea that the death penalty. Uh, in and of itself is unconstitutional when it was uh, practiced frequently. Um, and that point uh, is important, Jay. Yeah, that, that if you are an originalist, because what non-originalists, and you and I mostly, we, we have differences, but we kind of tend to fall in that camp. But if you're not an originalist, you make the uh, evolving standards of decency sort of argument saying that, you know, right. we focus on what is cruel and unusual and we don't look at practices. We look at what society believes and then you can focus on how many states have abolished it and therefore our standards of decency change. And so, ergo, you know, it can be considered cruel and unusual even if it wasn't right. to the framers. So. I mean, no, the, again, the, logic, the logical flaw in that uh, that argument, and I'm not saying you're making that argument, but yeah, the logical flaw in, in that evolving sense of senses, uh, and then you cite to, well, here's these legislatures that did this, uh, seems to say, well, okay, exactly. So if you want to evolve, then the, the way to do it is legislatively, uh, not simply by, by right. court distinguishing with the laws. Um, the other thing, I mean, the, the fact that there haven't been federal executions uh for so many years 2003 was the last one before this yeah yeah so i mean part of that there's also a function of there aren't that many federal crimes uh that that bring in the death penalty most just death penalty crimes are state right right are related so i think that there's part of that function and also the justice department had not been pushing these uh until more recently uh, when uh bar sort of uh, at the urging of president trump pushed to, to reopen moving on on some of these these federal executions um you know the extent my my opinion matters at all on this uh and this is sort of weird i'm I'm a little a bit of a death penalty agnostic uh, in that um i can see both sides uh on on the one hand uh in my experience uh clerking in the, the federal courts um 
Uh, I had, you know, I ran into a couple of death penalty cases and they exact a, a significant toll on everyone who has anything to do with them. Right. Um, the judges, the law clerks, the, the clerks of court, the, the prison officials, the governors, ev- everyone who is in that it's, it's, uh, it brings a heavy psychic and emotional toll. Um, and, and it's, it's not easy. Uh, there's also a big, you know, financial and time thing. Yeah. When you have one of these cases that, that, that shows up, I mean, it, it's an incredible amount of resources, uh, for the, the, uh, judicial system, um, uh, to, to, uh, you know, expend on, on these cases. And, and rightfully so, right? I mean, that's, that's the whole point is, you know, you have to expend that, those resources on this kind of case because the, uh, the, the, the result is, is irrepar- irreversible. Um, so I, I am a skeptic in, in that sense, in that uh, the death penalty in a lot of, a lot of times looks to me like a, a big expensive government project that, that doesn't necessarily uh, give you the, the, the bang for your buck, right? If the idea is we want to deter violent crime um, and this is a way to do it, I, I don't necessarily know that that always always works. Um, I think the research again, would, would back you up on that. that, yeah, saying that it's not much of a deterrent, which to me, if you want to make a justice, kind of a Old testament sort of justice argument for it, then, then it seems to me that one of the uh, one of the objections that was raised to the execution that we didn't really get into was from some of the families uh, saying that, you know, we, we want to witness this execution and uh, we're concerned because of COVID that we have some health issues and it would put us in jeopardy. And so we're asking for a stay until this is over so that we can witness it. And, you know, that was sort of dismissed almost out of hand by all the justices. But but I don't know. I mean, I, I think across as a little as a little disingenuous, a little sort of. A, what do you mean? Um, Sorry. I, well, I, you know, the the. Uh, uh, I mean, a little disingenuous, a little 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 gruesome. I'm not sure of the. Um, you know, if you're the uh, uh, the, the the defendants or the the uh, uh, convicted uh, uh, killers attorney do you argue hey look come on let's no this is delay yeah. this so everybody can so these guys can see it no, this was actually out. no this was actually brought by the families of the victims well, so, I, so I understand but i'm i'm and so i don't know if that's i mean i you know I, I if i put myself in that position and i've been waiting for say over 20 years this person murdered my my daughter sister wife something like that and i want to be there and see it i don't want to you know i don't want to is to be zoomed or anything like that. You know, I could see where, given the immense psychic toll, that that sort of, I don't know, closure or ending or something would be important. And, and you know, it's already been 20 years. I, if I were on the court, I might, I might see that as, you know, as, as a reasonable grounds for, for delaying. Uh, this court didn't. But uh, again, you know, I, I don't know that that's just a, a ludicrous kind of claim to make. Well, I, you know, I would, I would look to, I don't know whether the federal statute recognizes, um, I'm sure they recognize a right to, to be there to, to witness, but I'm, I'm, you know, whether in the policy is that, is that part of, uh, the reason we have a death penalty? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I, it's, but that's, it's an interesting point. Um, but, but the other hand on, on, um, a reason for having the death penalty. Uh, is I look at cases like um, uh, in, in Cleveland here, uh, Julian uh, Castro, uh, who is the guy who yeah. who kept uh, three women chained up in his basement for you know fifteen, ten, fifteen years, um, and you have some really horrible people uh, who sometimes, if faced with uh, the choice between uh, you can plead and uh, we'll give you life in prison versus the death penalty. Uh, will choose to plead. Uh, that saves the victims uh, having to relive all this uh, that they went through, putting them on the stand. Uh, the publicity that that uh, is attendant to them uh, in, in a trial, um, and it also saves uh, again a, a whole lot of uh, uh, you know state federal judicial resources, depending on the, the nature of the case. Uh, and I think that's there, there's something worthwhile there. 
uh, that having the death penalty on the table, right? I get that, but the problem is, is I just think there have been too many instances where we found out after the fact that, uh, you know, somebody who was convicted of, you know, some sort of heinous, heinous crime actually didn't do it. You know, there are these, yeah. yeah, and, And so it's, to me, it's the finality of it, that if there is a miscarriage of justice, it's, you know, it's one thing to lose 10, 15, 20 more years of your life. And that's, that's horrific enough. But to, to take away a person's life, that, that I just don't think, again, that's why I agree with those majority of the states who've just taken it, taken it off the table. I think the, the potential harms just outweigh any potential benefits for, uh, for, en- for ending a life. Okay. So. So I, I, you know, I, I know that, well, that's kind of a, that's kind of a, uh, dark note to, to sort of, to sort of, uh, end on. So maybe, maybe before, and of course there are other things I know we really wanted to get to. I was well, I, did, of, I did have one other thing we can touch on. We may have time for it. Oh, okay. So, and that, that was, um, uh, Trump has, uh, replaced his, uh, campaign manager, oh, okay. uh, Brad Parscale or Parscale perhaps. Uh, who had been his his uh, campaign manager uh, was uh, stepped aside and will now become a senior uh, advisor to the president. Uh, in his place will be uh, Bill Stepien, who is a uh, longtime aide of, of President Trump. And this comes amidst uh, uh, polls showing Biden uh, holding a eight to ten percent uh, lead over the president. Um, and I don't know that we have a whole lot to talk about on, on this, but but you wanted to mention it. Um, this also comes sort of in the, the wake of, of some other calls for that the president needed to kind of reboot his campaign uh, and other shakeups. He had, had changed folks in his uh, legal team on the campaign a couple weeks ago. Um, so, Mike, Mike, what are your thoughts on on what this means, if anything? Well, I mean, generally speaking, you know, changing your campaign manager in the middle of things is a sign that you're not happy with, with how things are going. I, I don't think he ever recovered from the Tulsa uh, debacle, which, you know, was a huge disappointment to the president. So, uh, but to me, it comes down to, as a political scientist, it comes down to the fundamentals. And we know, regardless of, you know, coronavirus aside, Trump aside, that uh, it's rough or incumbents when uh, when there are you know a, a major economic downturn when there's a major crisis that people feel is not being adequately addressed and you know Donald Trump has run right into both of these things and certainly you could argue that you know the uh, the virus itself was not of his making the response certainly was and it's you know he's in a rough spot electorally it's the, the national numbers don't mean anything but if we take a look at what I think most everyone would agree the key battleground states are, uh, you know, uh, Joe Biden is well over the margin of error ahead in all of those states. And so it, it's it's tough for Donald Trump. Uh, and you know, there are a lot of people who are frustrated because he keeps on a lot of people would argue shooting himself you know, in, in, in his own in his own feet uh, over this. And so, uh, you know. I think he'd like to believe that with a new campaign manager, things are going to turn around. But ultimately, Donald Trump is is Donald Trump's campaign manager. His message hasn't changed. His approach hasn't changed. But what has changed is the situation on the ground. And that's just going to make that's just make life really, really tougher in the matter who technically holds the title of campaign manager. Right. Uh, To me, to some extent, this this is just a lot of this is the, the Trump management style, yeah, right? Um, good point. And Trump's had more, I mean, there's sort of, it's it's more campaign managers than Cleveland Browns have had quarterbacks. Or coaches. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's sort of, they're, they're sort of the, you know, the running meme joke, if you're a Cleveland fan, of like, you know, since the return of, of like quarterbacks' names on the jersey and each one crossed out with, with yeah. another. Um, so yeah, Trump had, had started, again, I, I've, I've counted uh, Corey Lewandowski, uh, uh, Paul Manafort, Steve Bannon, Kellyanne Conway, uh, and then Brad Parscale, and um, um, uh, now Bill, Bill Stepien. And I think I'm probably missing a couple people in between who might not have officially had the title campaign manager, but were essentially uh, were essentially Top that person. Yeah, uh, by, yeah. Titles might change. Uh, but yeah, it is just a matter of, of Trump sort of manages uh, through chaos, right? That's just what he does. If you ever watch the show, he fires somebody on every episode, and and that's. That's sort of what what we've got here. So I, I tend to agree with you. 
Uh, I don't think this makes a big difference because in the end, uh, Trump is kind of his own own campaign manager, um, and and he's going to do what he's going to do. So uh, you know, we'll and, and and no one really knows. Yeah. Except Donald <laughs> it's Trump, exactly surprised what, everyone. What exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so so with that, Mike, what recommendations uh, do you have this week uh, to help us help us get through all this? Well, uh, uh, I have a recommendation, kind of a late, uh, late, not late breaking exactly. It just came to me uh, yesterday evening, actually, Friday evening, is uh, 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 earlier this week uh, on the Facebook page and I think in the Bipartisan Politics Reddit, I posted a thing about uh, Barry Weiss, you know, the uh, New York Times uh, conservative uh, editorial page person who resigned and wrote this scathing letter about how awful the New York Times has become and so forth. And there yeah, it was interesting, the responses to that. But there was another resignation this week. Uh, Andrew Sullivan, actually, I, it sounded like from his letter that he might have actually been sort of not renewed or let go from New York Magazine, where he's had a column for a, a number of years now. And Andrew Sullivan is sort of an iconoclastic conservative. Um, and I I disagree with him on some things. I think he can be overly alarmist, but he's always interesting. And what he had to say was that, you know, he had a good experience in New York Magazine, which is owned by Vox Media, which also owns, of course, Vox, the Ezra Klein, uh, Matt Iglesias website. But he concluded that even though it's been, a, you know, a great time and some of the most most read articles from New York Magazine are his articles, he said, a critical mass of the staff and management at New York Magazine and Vox Media no longer want to associate with me. And in a time of ever-tightening budgets, I'm a luxury item they don't want to afford. And that made me really sad. And it kind of made me think about, you know, Kevin Williamson was hired for like half a heartbeat at the Atlantic. Exactly. And then it was, oh, we can't have someone like that. And, you know, it, it seems like we've, we're witnessing the demise of sort of the general interest sort of site where you can just go here and get a variety of voices. And and I won't get into Andrew Sullivan's specific claims. Maybe he's right or not. But here's where my recommendation comes in. Uh, he's actually restarting his own personal blog thing called The Dish, which he had before he uh, went went to New York Magazine. And it's going to be a subscription site, but it's free for a while. I actually subscribe to it because I, you know, I, I think he's an important voice and I believe in supporting voices that, you know, to the extent that I can, but it's free for a while. And so I will put the link up there. Andrew Sullivan is always interesting to read. I think he's often wrong, always interesting. And so that's my recommendation for this week. Okay. Um, with that, I'll tell you, I don't really have anything uh, queued up for a recommendation because it was a little bit of a goofy week for me. So I didn't really have much much leisure time to sort of pick something else, but I will come back with with something even better uh, next time. Okay, that that sounds great. Well, I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, that does. Well, that winds things up, ends things for today. We do have a bunch of things we want to talk about on our. We will talk about on our midweek supporter show, like for instance, the big. Uh, well, I actually used the word kerfuffle. Yes, kerfuffle. Oh my gosh, I used bumfuzzled and kerfuffle in the same episode becoming somebody's grandfather. Anyway, uh, about the COVID data moving from the CDC to HHS, there's a lot of talk about, you know, transparency and polit polit politicization and also the whole issue with Peter Navarro going off on uh, on Anthony Fauci and where Donald Trump stands in all this. And uh, Joe Biden released, uh, yeah, I think, a pretty interesting climate plan. I have some thoughts on that and maybe even what I would call the final humiliation of Jeff Sessions, who a guy who, as you know, Jay, who I completely disagree with on just about everything, but who I believe is a man like of integrity. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. that doesn't mean I think, yeah, exactly. So I don't know how much of that we'll get to. I think a lot of it, but if you are a supporter, that will be in your feed on Wednesday. If you're not a supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politics guy, sign up. And again, remember, uh, if you can't afford to become a supporter, just email me, Mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you all set up. And, you know, sometimes being a monthly supporter, too much of a commitment. Hey, you could do a one-time thing at PayPal. You can find information about that at our site, politicsguys.com. Also, something that costs you nothing and really matters a lot to us. If you could subscribe to the show, leave ratings and reviews, and especially if you could share your favorite episodes on social media. 
If you just want to get in touch with us, you have a question, comment, want to you know suggest the story for either the regular show or the midweek show, it's mail at politicsguys.com. And also make sure you check out, if you want to, to make sure. This is not a mandate. This is a request like masks. Right. Uh, our Bipartisan Politics subreddit, you'll find the URL in the show notes. And also our Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And of course, we are on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Nathan Sosnowski. Today's show was produced by us, Mike and Jay. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope to join us.